Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, what would the Ontario NDP like to see in today's provincial budget? Marit Stiles, leader of the Ontario NDP, will join us and talk about that. And what can we expect from Joe Biden's two-day visit to Canada with the Prime Minister? Lots to talk about there. And Liberal MP Han Dong resigned from the Liberal caucus yesterday. He denies all allegations of foreign interference. What are the next steps in that process? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It's a budget day here in the province of Ontario, and uh, the Ontario government is uh, set to table its budget later on this afternoon among surging revenues and a potential economic slowdown. But as Mr. P- Peter Vethlenvalvi is going to uh, rise in the uh, legislature, of course, uh, says that uh, they're going to table some aims to attract jobs and infrastructure. Global's Colin DeMello has a, an oversight for us now. There were some projections from the Financial Accountability Officer, the independent budget watchdog, who suggested that Ontario's growth is going to slow to about just a half a percent. So what does that mean? That means the province can't necessarily rely on a lot of revenue streams uh, from consumer spending, right? It can't rely on having a lot of money flowing into the coffers. So they have to maybe perhaps do two things. One, either slow the spending, so keep whatever they have in place, or then decide to make some, you know, some decisions, some hard choices about where that money goes. Colin DeMello, who, of course, is going to be in the legislature uh, for the budget, and he'll be reporting on that uh, over the next couple of days, I'm sure, as we try to uh, get uh, some of the insights as to what's going to be happening. Our next guest will be in the legislature for that budget presentation as well. Uh, She is Marit Stiles, who is the leader of the Ontario NDP and, of course, the leader of the opposition in the legislature. Uh, Marit, thank you so much for the time on a busy day. Glad you could join us for a few minutes. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's going to be a busy one. <laughs> it, it, what are you expecting this afternoon? We know, for instance, that uh, they've had to change their their projections because they, they got a lot more money than they thought they were going to get. Uh, that's good news. I guess the question now is, well, what are they going to do with it? I know it's going to, there's con- some concerns about what may be happening down the road, but but what about the here and now? There's an awful lot of, of, of things that need to be addressed here by this government. Mm. Well, you know, I, I'll tell you what I, I would like to see from the government today. And that's I, I want to see a budget that meets the moment. Right. Because things are not great right here in Ontario at this moment. As you said, I mean, we've got a lot of areas where we need to see some serious investment and some change from this government. Um, I'm not super hopeful because one of the things that we've noticed, certainly in the last couple of years, is they don't spend what they say they're going to spend. So they put aside money then they don't spend it. And they're not spending in areas where we actually really need it, where we have crises like like in healthcare, uh, like in education. And and these are really important because we we need, you know, we need confidence in, in our social services. We we need a bump in the economy. And and also people are just finding life really unaffordable right now, which of course, you know, your listeners know, uh, whether it's housing or it's groceries. Uh, things are not great, um, and I'm I'm hoping we don't see too many gimmicks in this bill. I just want to see some solid uh, investment uh, to meet the moment. Well, let's talk about some of those things. I'm glad you mentioned about spending or not spending because that's become almost a parlor game, I think, in some people's places right now. Okay, yeah. Which one of these programs are they not going to actually do? Uh, because they do make some grand announcements, and then once the auditor gets a look at these things a few months later, they said, well, they never spent a nickel on that, uh, which is very yeah, troubling because, right. you know, who do you believe and what do you believe from what we're going to hear mm-hmm. this afternoon? Uh, and, and well, let's start with housing, as you mentioned just a second ago. Uh, they're talking the talk about it, but, you know, we're not seeing a whole lot of action on that front. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we don't see a lot of action. We we hear you know that they're going to pave over the green belt to build build homes, but you know th- these are not these are not plans to build affordable homes, right? We're not going to get to the place we need to to build the 1.5 million homes that we need. Uh, if we don't start to actually get the government doesn't start to roll up their sleeves and actually build it themselves. And I think that is really critical, right? Is we need an investment in nonprofit community housing. Uh, that means things like co-op housing. That means like rent geared to income. We need to see the government uh, bring back rent control, frankly, which is one of the first things they did when they were elected back in 2018 is they took away rent control. And now we've seen rent just skyrocket for so many people. So these are things that they could be doing right now to protect renters, to make life more affordable for a lot of people out there. But we got to get moving fast. And, you know, paving over the green belt, which they keep saying is about housing, isn't going to build the housing we need. It's going to build a lot of sprawl. It's going to build probably some luxury homes, but it isn't going to make life more affordable for people. Well, and you've seen the reports, and certainly we've talked about it on this program, that uh, the, the, the Premier's own task force on housing uh, that was struck about a year or so ago uh, said you don't need to go into the green belt. Absolutely not. There's more than enough space and more than enough uh, projects okay. within existing uh, areas that we don't need to any, have any incursions at all. i got to ask you, though, I know this is budget day, but uh, the story that we covered a couple of days ago, that the federal environment minister, uh, Mr. Gilbeau, may mm-hmm. actually be getting involved in the green belt discussion. Your, your thoughts on that? I mean, it, you know, Doug Ford seemed to kind of just slap it off and say, no big deal. I, you know, God bless him. Uh, but the federal government wants to really roll up their sleeves on this. Uh, they could uh, delay this and maybe even, you know, be a fly in the ointment for any possible green belt incursions. Yeah, I think I think Doug Ford should be taking this a little bit more seriously, actually, because in fact, the government, the federal government's are rolling up their sleeves and saying, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna look at, you know, what does this mean for species at risk for some of our, you know, rural our urban parkland? Uh, this is, I think, the only national urban park, right? Uh, and so they're they're using the tools that they have. Some of them, I I would like them to use every tool in their toolbox. Uh, look, I we asked the federal minister to do something. Uh, I spoke to the federal minister just a couple weeks ago and said, you know, we need you guys to do to step in. Uh, I will do whatever it takes uh, to stop this. And and so I think Doug Ford should be taking this very seriously because this could really throw a spanner in the works uh, for their plans. And and he doesn't want anything to get in the way of him uh, helping some of his developer friends make a quick buck here. But uh, but I, I really think so. I understand why the premier wants to pretend like it's not a big deal. But it sure is. And I think it will actually hold up uh, the development of the green belt. And, you know, a lot of us are hoping that in the next election, should we form government, uh, we can cancel these plans. So anything that holds it up is a good thing. This, I mean, we're talking about the macro projects. Housing is certainly one of those. Uh, infrastructure investment, uh, member me- money for communities, of course, public transit, and and we mm-hmm. those are issues in just about every city in the province right now. We understand that, yeah. but there's some smaller stuff in here too that uh, that has leaked out. Uh, one of them is the, is the cancellation of the sick days policy. I know that was put in there because of COVID. Yeah. Uh, but a number of people who don't have the kinds of protections that, that the government might think they have vis-a-vis benefit plans uh, count on stuff like that. You know, in other words, if I get yeah, sick, right. I don't get to, you know, I don't get paid if I don't go to work. And uh, that's going to put an awful yeah. lot of pressure on an awful lot of people. And apparently they're canceling the program at the end of this month. Yeah, they are. And that's really disappointing. I mean, we were actually, we've been pushing them to expand it to 10 uh, permanent paid sick days uh, because we don't think that anybody should be forced to go to work sick uh, just to be to have to put 
food on the table. And like you said, a lot of people do not have sick days. Uh, so it's really important. It's especially the workers that we know are the most vulnerable workers. And we saw this in the pandemic, how important it is. Uh, we've become a society and before the pandemic, certainly a society where we expect people to go to work no matter what, you know, you got to go to work, make a buck and, and, and employers aren't providing those protections. And we know that what ends up happening is that that just makes a lot more people sick in the end. So it's better to stay home if you're sick. Uh, and, you know, frankly, lots of people have been have that's, I think, saved lives in the pandemic. So it's definitely the wrong way for the government to go. Uh, and it will, uh, you know, and the other part of this is, you know, people are actually losing it because they have to stay home when they're sick sometimes and they and it isn't paid sick days. Uh, they're losing income. And at a time when life has become already really unaffordable. What can government do in situations like this? The cost of living. I know inflation is going down mm. incrementally, but it is going down. That's the good news. But price of groceries went up again last month, even though we have this, it seems to be a sliding scale here. You know, uh, inflation seems to be decreasing within the, you know, it's costing us a ton more now to go inside a grocery store. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't set price controls, I don't think. But I mean, there's got to be some sort of uh, government uh, intervention or government assistance here for people that basically, you know, they can't afford to buy groceries. They, they're, you know, we've gone from, okay, I can't shop at Loblaw anymore. I'm going to go to the discount store. They can't even afford the discount store anymore. Food banks are starting to run out of food now because because of what's going on here. Right. It's just a vicious, vicious cycle. And I don't see the government yeah. interceding in any way. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, you know, it's good news that inflation is slowing down, but that doesn't stop the fact that those prices are already really, really high and people's wages haven't kept up. And so government can do a lot of things, right? One of the things they can do right away is they could actually address and, and boost wages for the jobs that they actually control. So, you know, we know that they put in place a, a bill legislation a while back to to freeze wages for, for nurses, for teachers, for education workers, for all kinds of public sector workers, right? And and so that's one of the reasons. I mean, in fact, that's the main reason why we're seeing a crisis in healthcare because nurses are burned out. They're working, you know, crazy hours. They've just gone through the pandemic. Then they get this disrespect from the government. They they are actually struggling. I mean, nursing is a good job, but you know, is it worth it to you when you can go over here to some private nursing agency and make you know double the amount? <laughs> you know, the government needs to raise those wages. They have to stop fighting in the courts to keep nurses and other public sector workers' wages down. Uh, they deserve a, a, an increase just like anybody else, and we should not have a situation like we have right now where people who have full-time jobs, decent jobs, are lining up at food banks. It's outrageous. And the other thing they could obviously do that they control is they control how much people um, get for, you know, Ontario Disability Support Plan or Ontario Works. And, and you know, I'll tell you, you know, increasing that, you know, according to the cost of living is, is a step in the right direction. But we really, we know based on uh, all the research out there and the lived experience of so many people that we should be doubling those rates. Uh, people are living in poverty. Uh, homelessness is uh, an, an epidemic across this province in every tiny town. We have homelessness, uh, you know, skyrocketing. So they really do need to do something and do the right thing here. Uh, this is the time because we will all pay the cost of that, you know, down the road if people are slipping through the cracks. Uh, you mentioned healthcare, and I, I just well have got you because we haven't talked uh, for a while here, and I wanted to just get yeah. this on the table because we've done some research about uh, the Ford plan. And I know this is budget day, but it's all tied together, healthcare and budgets, et cetera. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, and, and clearly in this province, according to the premier, we're moving more and more towards uh, for-profit health care. I mean, it's the, the ratios here are changing dramatically. Uh, there are some places that are doing it already. Uh, we've done some research and looked at some of the studies there. It actually costs more to deliver. Uh, with private uh, public health care and, and private health care, uh, simply because the government pays more to those private clinics for the same service. If I get a knee replacement done in a hospital, it's X number of dollars. They get more if I go to a private clinic. That, that's And that's coming out of our pockets. I mean, those are taxpayers that are subsidizing that. When do we have that discussion and actually put some numbers to their plan? Well, exactly. And I and I think what we're, we're we we have had seen a lot of talk, but we haven't seen many details. And a lot of the problem with this move to a privatized kind of two tier system where you have a lot of, um, frankly, private, you know, for profit companies coming in and to benefit off of our healthcare system uh, is that they're protected because they're considered their businesses. And so the government's already saying, like, they won't give us a lot of details because uh, of business. Uh, realities. We won't get a lot of information. We won't be able to uh, shine a light uh, on what they're making and what they're making in profits and and what they're paying people and how they're being regulated and are they being inspected? I mean, these are all really important questions uh, because this is about people's health. And and so we, we really don't know a lot yet. And so the budget does, I mean, hopefully will show us a little bit more about that. But one thing we do know is that the Financial Accountability Office, which is like this um, you know, independent uh, a wing of government that looks at all of these numbers and, and can really dig in. And they're saying that the government has not actually so far budgeted enough for what they're planning to do and for what the increased demand is going to be uh, for healthcare over the years. Uh, so they're way behind, about $21 billion behind in what they should be uh, spending or planning to spend going forward uh, if to meet the, the healthcare needs of Ontarians. Well, as I say, we'll hear some numbers today, but uh, the the application of, of where that's actually going to be going and and how soon that's going to be happening, I guess, are details that uh, that we'll find out in the coming days when you actually start to debate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, as always, I appreciate your time today and a very busy budget day. Thanks so much for this. Thank you so much. It's always great to be here. Take care. Marit Stiles, leader of the Ontario NDP and, of course, leader of the opposition in the Ontario legislature. And and I, I, it's easy to, to, to just get partisan about this and say, well, you don't like Doug Ford, you don't like the government. But, I mean, they are the government. It's a majority government. And as we've been talking about on this program, there are some huge challenges here that need to be addressed. And and I know that, you know, you like to use buzzwords in politics, jobs, job creation, you know, economic development. And those are all great. And those are all laudable goals. And they're very necessary. But it's the little stuff, too, that has an impact on our everyday lives. And we're going to see what's happening with that a little bit later on this afternoon when the finance minister rises in the House. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I don't think the president believes Prime Minister Trudeau needs to have a message delivered on supporting Ukraine. I mean, the Canadians have been right there with us since the very beginning. And part of this uh, Ukraine contact group, they have uh, given millions of dollars in security assistance as well as humanitarian and even financial assistance, uh, Kristen. So they have stepped up uh, in a big way. We're grateful for that support. That's uh, National Security Spokesperson uh, John Kirby. Speaking on behalf of the president, of course, uh, Joe Biden's on his way to Ottawa. Well, he will be later on this afternoon anyway, uh, for actually a two-day meeting and uh, a lot to talk about between the two leaders. Uh, Joining us to talk about what they're going to talk about, uh, please to welcome back to the program, uh, Wayne Petrosi, professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Toronto Metropolitan University. Professor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Oh, you're welcome. Good morning. 
Let me let me address, uh, if I could, one of the criticisms uh, that it just seems to keep cropping up again. Um, traditionally, as as like you and I have talked about in the past, uh, the president usually makes his first out of country visit to Canada. It's been a tradition, I guess, going back to Eisenhower and Kennedy and everyone else. Uh, it's more than halfway through the term that Joe Biden's finally crossed the forty ninth parallel. Uh, does that send us a message that uh, that Canada is not as important in in U.S. plans as as maybe we were in the past? Oh, I, I don't think it's that simple and direct a, a kind of a causal link. I mean, you have to keep in mind the context. The last couple of years haven't hard, uh, haven't actually been quiet times internationally or you know it, nationally in the United States. So there's other issues that have cropped up that have required the attention of of, of the new administration. So I think that's that's a pretty significant part of that. Well, the other element, too, I suppose, is, I mean, we're in the 21st century here, aren't we? You don't have to have a face-to-face to have a conversation. I know they've met at, at G7 meetings. They've met at NATO meetings. Uh, you can pick up the phone. You can you can Zoom. There's a whole lot of stuff they can do because they have clearly have had a number of different conversations about what John Kirby just talked about, for instance, uh, with Canada's uh, contribution to Ukraine. Uh, but I'm sure that's going to be part of the agenda. Uh, there's a few other things, though, Professor, that I wanted to get into that seems somewhat controversial uh, and we may be at odds with. And one of those, of course, is immigration and the, the, the dealing not just with immigration itself, but with refugees. Uh, and, and it just seems as if there's a different message coming from the United States than there is here in Canada. Uh, and it's, it's a point of conflict here that I think the two of them are going to have to wrestle with. You know, they, they certainly are at uh, they have uh, different interests. At the end of the day, the Canadians and the Americans, uh, you know, we have some issues with around Roxham Road and the illegal entry for and asylum claims coming out of there. Uh, the Americans have have issues around their own southern border, and you know the fact that you have a couple of states in the region, Venezuela and Haiti that are just uh, bursting with it, outflows, people fleeing conflicts, in the case of Haiti, a failed state, you know, to the point where they make up, I think, over half of all the asylum claims at the southern border of the United States. And they would like some help with that. And, and you know, in the past, Canada did, for example, make special arrangements for Haitian refugees in an earlier crisis, the country seems to have been in crisis almost nonstop for three decades now. Uh, and I think the Americans would like the Canadians to take some of the heat off of that flow by, again, making some arrangements of that sort again. And, of course, they want Canadian help. They'd like Canada to get involved in Haiti itself, which, by the way, I think that ought to be the last thing the prime minister agrees to. Yeah, the, I guess depending on on how which prescription or description you you want to move to, uh, but they basically I guess looking for Canada to if if not head at least to take charge uh, and oversee uh, some of the, the the work that has to go on there. Well, basically to get the gangs under control, which is probably going to mean not just police but perhaps military uh, contributions of some description. I, I I don't get the sense though that Ottawa is really going to move in that direction. What are you hearing? No, they certainly shouldn't. Uh, I mean, you know, it, it isn't just a problem of, you know, some gangs running around in the streets uh, of uh, uh, the capital city and ca- causing chaos. Those gangs are connected politically as well. So, you know, it's almost like asking the international community to go in a sense into Haiti 
and impose a system of administration and, and justice within the Haitian state. And you're not going to do that unless the Haitians themselves want it and are prepared to lead it. And there's no sign of that. So, yeah, certainly this is an area where I think the Canadian government will be very, very, very shy about getting involved in this initiative. We talked earlier about uh, about the involvement here between Canadian and American uh, military's commitments, of course. Uh, and and I know there've been some meetings about this already, especially kind of a, uh, I guess a, a revamping of of NORAD and and Minister Anand and others have made announcements about Canada's recommitment to that. Uh, from what we've heard over the last few months, I guess now, Professor, uh, can can the U.S. look at this and say, okay, we're not, you guys are not where we want you to be yet, but you're moving in the right direction now. Does that take some of the heat off uh, off of, of, of this delegation right now to suggest that doesn't necessarily have to be a priority? I'm not so sure. I, I you know, and and you know, the, I, I think the Americans are probably a bit puzzled, if not frustrated, by Canadian hesitancy around the far north and around and NORAD. I mean, this is our own turf, uh, and they think the pattern or the pace of spending announced by the Canadian government or actually carried out by the Canadian government to this point has hasn't nearly been quick enough. I think, as far as the Americans are concerned. Uh, they would like to see NORAD uh, updated, upgraded in something uh, quicker than a two-decade time frame. Uh, and so I, I think there will be push there. Uh, and uh, I think the Canadians might have to agree that, in fact, you know, in light of the current situation or the issues we have internationally, uh, perhaps we need to uh, increase the pace of, of our spending and with in relation to to NORAD in particular and uh, the far north more generally. Well, simply, as you say, because of the politics involved in this. I mean, Russia seems to be trying to lay claim to some of this. So some of the Nordic nations are are doing some research. China is is uh, is, is has a presence in, in that particular part of the world now, too. We, we can't just claim sovereignty here, can we? We've got to exercise it. No, there's no question I, I, that that we have to be more assertive in in identifying Canadian national interest in the far north. Speaking of China, very briefly, uh, there's a lot of concern here about about foreign interference in elections. Uh, the United States went through this process a couple of years ago when they looked into the the idea of the Russians in interfering in their electoral process. Uh, but the 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 influx of of seemingly uh, covert activities by by Chinese uh, officials, uh, secret police, or something, the police stations they have here, the concern about leaks, the, the concern about the relationship between uh, Chinese scientists, some of them are military Chinese scientists, and, and Canadian universities, etc. Uh, I know that uh, that that the the five eyes of the uh, a, you know, this agency that, that of course we're a partner with here, uh, sharing information about uh, things of this nature have expressed concern in the past. Is, is that something the president brings up today and says, look at what's going on here? Yeah, you know, I don't think he, uh, he that will necessarily come to the main table of, of conversation. It, it, it may be part of a, of, a, of a perhaps larger conversation around initiatives that uh, Western powers or allies need to undertake to secure uh, but internally as well as externally, their their sovereignty. But I don't think it's it's a preoccupation of the of the Biden folks this time around. 
bigger fish to fry, I guess, and, and a number of things that have to go on the agenda. Uh, Professor, so. it's always a pleasure. Very, very busy day today. A lot of ground to cover on this. Thank you for spending a little bit of time with us this morning. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. That's uh, Professor Wade Petrosi from uh, Toronto's Metropolitan University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. To my family, and in particular, my parents, who brought us here to Canada. To my wife, Sophie, and my kids, I love you. I thank you for all the support and love you gave me. The truth will protect us. That's uh, last night in the House of Commons. Uh, Han Dong, the member of parliament at the centre of the allegations of uh, Chinese meddling in Canadian affairs, says he's resigning from the Liberal caucus and will sit as an independent. Uh, Accusations uh, from a story that uh, surfaced yesterday from Global News and uh, Global News reporter Sam Cooper uh, that uh, they allege in the the story anyway that, uh, that Mr. Dong actually met with Chinese officials and asked them to delay the release of the two Michaels uh, back in the day because uh, he was concerned that it might actually help the Conservatives in what was then the upcoming federal election. He denies it, of course, and uh, has made his own comments about this. And this is really just, I guess, ramping up the the concern that we've got about foreign interventions in in Canadian politics, not just in elections. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Robert Hewish. Uh, Dr. Hewish, of course, Associate Professor in the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks for jumping on today. Thanks very much, Bill. Thanks indeed. This just gets crazier and crazier and, and, and more and more concerning, I guess, uh, that a backbench MP is actually involved in, in an international situation or allegedly involved in an international situation. This seemed to come out of left field. What were your reactions and your thoughts when you heard the story yesterday? Well, the, the first one, Bill, is is just this chain of, of leaked documents and, and allegations that seem to be coming from a source within CSIS that, that seems to be coming out almost telling a very get ready for the big conclusion narrative. Like we're we're hearing more and more evidence all the time from these documents to say that, uh, yes, there's interference in these areas. We've now uh, had cases emerge at uh, municipal level governments, uh, such as in Montreal and now in Vancouver. Uh, provincial governments are probably next in line for some qu- hard questions coming their way. And now we've got the first case where there's a real serious allegation being put forward on a Canadian member of parliament who happened to be in the Liberal caucus. Uh, if this has actually got teeth to it, and if this charge is, is correct, uh, this is this is incredibly serious. Uh, this is uh, there's all sorts of breaches of conduct here from, uh, you know, the role of uh, Hendong as a, as a backbench MP. I mean, he did serve on a couple of key committees that both have, you know, interest to China. But the, uh, the but the idea about asking a foreign government to detain Canadian citizens for political advantage that I've that's that's beyond any fiction story I could even imagine. Uh, and if that becomes true, then uh, Handong is going to face a lot of uh, of legal and uh, possibly criminal uh, uh, persecution as a result of it. You brought up an interesting point that crossed my mind as I was leading through some of the details of, of Sam Cooper's reporting on this in Global yesterday. It's almost as if there's a, a strategic release of some of this information. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is not, uh, you know, done on an arbitrary basis. It doesn't seem to be, anyways. Almost a timing. Okay, well, now, okay, four days from now, we're going to do this, and the, uh, somebody in CSIS or somebody who has access to, to the information from the, in the CSIS files on this uh, is, is trying to send a message here. But they don't want to. I guess, as you say, they don't want to start with the crescendo. Uh, they would. They seem to be building up to something here. 
Well, that was it, Bill. And even if we if we go back to some of the early reports that were coming uh, from Global Mail, I think it was Bob Fife who was yeah. uh, reporting this. They, they, they seem to just you know, come to a point, then the story just got bigger after that. Uh, one of the things that I've been trying to keep my eye on is looking at how the proven cases of Chinese interference in other countries have played out. And in many ways, the script is following suit quite closely to what we see unfolding here, that there was targeting influence, uh, not just at the federal levels, at national levels, but at municipal levels. That was the case in New Zealand. There were uh, regional uh, issues that came up as well. That We've seen the FBI open up uh, hundreds of reports uh, that we're looking at uh, Chinese state interference, not at the federal level in the U.S., but at state levels and even at uh, county levels or even at uh, w- w- with certain universities, you know, trying to go below ground to try to build that reputation. But the charge that's come up here with Han Dong is, uh, is wild. Um, there, there's just, it's almost, I couldn't imagine a sitting MP uh, putting themselves in this position to be this reckless. Uh, I mean, when you go and you have dialogue with a foreign embassy, uh, you're not going over to have lunch with friends, right? This requires training. And and whoever uh, would have advised this individual to go into these conversations, just drop the ball. Uh, you you go into conversations with uh, with foreign representatives, either as uh, you know you represent your own nation, or you wind up being an informer to some degree. Uh, that's that's the level of dialogue. I mean, there, there's there's a real careful script in diplomacy that, and when you are in a in a, an official talk, an official meeting, you stay to your home team script. You don't deviate. There's no such thing as water cooler chat. Um, part of it is is uh, you know, understanding what is being said, but also what is trying to be said. Uh, after hours, maybe at an informal thing somewhere, then it's it's a bit looser. But uh, to, to be that reckless with such a claim is is shocking. So uh, it, it's going to be very interesting to see what further evidence emerges. And I would say that seeing as how these leaks have come forward, we can probably expect more details to come out this way. Well, exactly. And and the question, I guess, that nobody seems to want to ask out loud is how far up the ladder does this go? Who knew what and when did they know it uh, about these yeah. sorts of things? I mean, this is, as you say, a, a backbench MP. A, a, of course, they all sit on different committees, et cetera. But uh, you would have thought that if, if this was going to be on back kind channel. of important in this case. There was the yeah. Canada-China Legislative Associ- uh, Association. So that's the nonpartisan uh, forum that looks at bilateral issues directly between Canada and China. So that's one thing. And then he was also on the Committee on Access to Information, Privacy, and Ethics. Now, that touches right into the Huawei uh, debacle that was going on as well. So the two big areas that have been under scrutiny uh, between Canada and China relationships, uh, you know, Mr. Dong would have would have been, you know, in that circle of conversations on Parliament Hill. So that'll be the the next thing. Like if it was just as one individual or was there more broader participation at the committee level? We'll have to see. Well. And because we've heard accusations before this thing even started to, to percolate uh, from other individuals, you know, former ambassador to China, Dominic Barton, who seems to have close ties to Trudeau and has been accused of being sympathetic to the Chinese government. Uh, John McCallum, former cabinet minister, in a very similar situation. It just seems that, you know, it, it, Mr. Dong doesn't seem to be the the obvious choice in situations like this. But as you say, given the, the work that he was doing on those committees, uh, I, I, I guess you can't simply dismiss this, can you? And simply say, oh, that's no. That's too wild. That's not going on. Uh, no, there's, and, there's, and, and there's certainly not with Mr. Biden in town today, where yeah. you know we're we're hearing more and more that there has been a longstanding concern from the U.S. that that Canada has allowed itself to be uh, to be compromised by 
Chinese state officials on multiple levels. Um, so that is, that's something that's been a worrisome point of contention with the U.S. for a long time. And if this does mount up, then, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to see just how deep and th- this influence has gone. And the, the real game bill, I think, after this will be to try to piece back the situations where the Canadian government or provincial governments or municipal governments have made decisions that ultimately favored the interests of a foreign state and uh, didn't put Canadians' interests uh, going forward. And and that might be a case where there's been a presentation of two conflicting sources of, of data. And I'm thinking back to the beginning of the, the pandemic where military intelligence uh, was saying this is going to be a big deal uh, and around January 2020. And then the WHO and China was saying, no, 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 we got it under control. March 2020 shows up and everything everything goes sideways. Uh, what do we know in that era? And why did we make decisions the way we did during that time? Those are the questions that, that I think need to come up as well. And I got to figure, I know we just put it out I got to figure that this is, as you say, going to be part of the discussion between the president and the prime minister. It's not going to happen during the photo op in front of everybody, but uh, behind <laughs> no. closed doors, you got to figure that they're going to have to, to settle something here and figure out what's going on and develop a strategy. Uh, yeah. As they say in our business, more to come uh, on this one, more details, I'm sure. Uh, always a pleasure, Doctor. Thanks so much for this. My pleasure, Bill. Thanks for calling. Take care. Dr. Robert Hewish uh, from Dalhousie University with his take on what's going on. And uh, as we say, there just seems to be a systematic way in which this information is being let out. And uh, it's interesting to follow that track and see where it's going to lead us. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.